0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. This is Dr. Narjos Flores. Associate Director of Cancer Care Equity, a medical oncologist at dana Farber Cancer Institute, and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we're going to discuss no small cell lung cancer with re- rearrangements, including diagnosis, treatment, and new and exciting research coming down the pipeline. Today, I have two great physician investigators with experience in this subtype of lung cancer. First, I'm going to introduce my neighbor, Dr. Justin Gaynor. He's the director of the Center for Thoracic Cancers at the Massachusetts General Hospital, director of targeted immunotherapy in the Henry and Belinda Termers Center for Targeted Therapies and the co-leader of the Stand to Cancer. His major research interests have centered around two things targeted therapy and immunotherapy. And I also heard that he's a Yankees fan. Welcome Dr. Good morning, Amy. thanks so much for having me. We also have uh, Dr. Lisa Hendricks. She's an assistant professor at Research Institute Growth. School called oh, Oncology and Developmental Biology at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Her focus areas is, is thoracic oncology and particularly prevention and optimal treatment of brain metastasis and lung cancer and targeted therapy. Since 2019, Dr. Hendricks has coordinated the clinical lung cancer research of lung diseases and her institution. Welcome, Dr. Hendricks. Yes, thank you for inviting me. All right, so we are talking about red rearrangements and lung cancer. Red therapies are relatively new in the treatment of lung cancer. we're all friends here, so we're going to refer to each other uh, by first name. So, Justin, what is the history of RET rearrangements in lung cancer?
1: That, that's a great place to start. So, RET fusions or rearrangements were, were first discovered in non-cell lung cancer around 2012. And, you know, there were a number of simultaneous high-profile publications that identified these novel fusions, Using different technologies, and I think it's important to to remember where we were in the field at that time. So we had, you know, ALK fusions we already knew about, and ROS1 fusions we had already known about, and we knew that they defined distinct um, molecular subsets of non-small cell lung cancer. And we already had proof of principle that those were, you know, targetable. We already had first generation targeted therapies there that were highly efficacious. So I think early on, even from those initial publications, there was a lot of interest in red fusions and targeting them because, based on those preclinical papers, you know they behaved the same way. You know that that these were transforming in vitro and in vivo, and they conferred sensitivity to red inhibitors. Um, of course, you know as we'll talk about. You know, the initial drugs that were being used in those preclinical papers were were really, you know, repurposed drugs. They weren't designed to be ret inhibitors. They just happened to have anti-ret activity.
0: Thank you for answering that. And I think it's very important to understand, you know, how far we have come when it comes with targeted therapy. So Lisa, are red fusions present in normal tissue? If yes, like where are they?
2: Now then you talk about the normal morbid protein. That's a transmembrane protein. Yeah, the RAD is a proto-oncogene, so it plays a significant role uh, in the embryonic development and the function of the enteric nervous system and the renal system. So interestingly, if you have loss of function mutations, uh, for example in Hirschsprung's disease, you can have bowel dysfunction and you can have urinary tract malformations. If you have a fusion, uh, this can result in constitutive excavation of the red kinase domain. And these are found, for example, in papillary thyroid cancer, but also lung cancer. So, no, no fusions in normal tissue.
0: Thank you for that, because a lot of the other mutations that we have seen, you know, we can see in embryogenesis and other tissue. So, as we move to try to understand this unique subtype or no small cell lung cancer, Justin, what is the differences between this subgroup or non-small cell lung cancer compared to other groups? Are these patients different? Do they have any unique clinopathologic characteristics? characteristics? Um, and as an example, for we know that women have EGFR, ALK positive, tends to be trophic for the brain. What are those unique characteristics for the red fusions? That's a
1: great question. So first, you know, we know that these are found in approximately 1% to 2% of, of patients with non-small cell lung cancer, they tend to occur more commonly in carcinomas and in individuals with a light, never-smoking history. Uh, nonetheless, you know, as, as we've learned for other drivers, while there can be a predominance, you know, of clinical pathologic characteristics, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, the molecular finding trump uh, the the clinical characteristics, I and mean, we, we need to do testing. So we need to test in order to identify these patients.
0: And this is a question is um, a little bit off the script, and to the two of you, I have seen sometimes in practice that if the patient has a previous tobacco exposure, you know, they're excluded, should that be the case for red-positive uh, small cell lung cancer? I would start with Justin and then to Leah.
1: I would say absolutely not. Um, so, we know, particularly for non-squamous histology, we should be testing all patients uh, regardless of tobacco exposure. When it comes to squamous cell carcinomas, you know, the, the guidelines, you know, are, are generally saying for patients with a more limited tobacco exposure um, that those are the individuals where, where you certainly want to be testing. Some of us take the approach of testing all squamous patients, but but at, at a minimum, you know, if uh, someone has a limited tobacco exposure um, in squamous histology, we should be testing.
0: What are your thoughts about this? You know, and how is the practice where you at your location about excluding patients from testing due to a previous tobacco exposure?
2: No, I I fully agree with Justin. We uh, test all patients regardless of uh, previous smoking exposure. Uh, I also do agree that uh, squamous uh, carcinomas also should be tested especially if you have never or light smoke history. I think maybe to add uh, fish, you can use to test for red, but I think uh, there was some Dutch research uh, published one or two years ago in GTO showing that these uh, fish positive results can be false positive. So especially if you have a patient where you didn't expect to find a fusion, then you really should confirm with NGS that it's really a red fusion. Uh, but otherwise, I fully agree you should test regardless of smoking history because these patients can have benefit.
0: Lisa, along those lines, sometimes, you know, we get biopsies and, and oncology, particularly thoracic oncology, tissue is always the issue, right? Getting biopsies and running out of tissue is a very common conversation. How important are, for these patients, you know, sometimes we get just regular mutations and the fusions have been done or the, how important it is to go and re-bioxy to test, not only for red, but for ALK or similar fusions or rearrangements? Yeah,
2: I would really advocate for having the first biopsy already enough tissue. So I think in the whole chain of the diagnosis of uh, lung cancer, you should communicate with everyone involved. And I think in the Netherlands, we're well lucky that pulmonologists do the workup and the treatment. So in general, we know that we need to have lots of tissue the first time uh, you do a biopsy. But also if you have a trans biopsy, so the radiologist is doing these in the Netherlands, you should communicate that they should have a uh, large couch uh, biopsies, really have enough tissue. So not only enough for a diagnosis of lung cancer, but really have enough the first time to do all the molecular testing. Uh, but if you really cannot test everything, I would argue for rebiopsy If the patient can yeah, tolerate waiting uh, some more, otherwise I would do it on progression on the first line then you see quite often that patient really, and they don't have the time to wait for a new biopsy and wait for the NGS results. So I would do it just the first time uh, as good as possible.
0: Thank you. Um, am seriously considering doing a t-shirt that says no FNAs for me, but, um, I, I haven't done it yet, but it's in my to-do list. So Lisa, as we continue to talk, what are the current red inhibitors approved for the treatment lung cancer? I think
2: fortunately we have two now approved. You have Celpercatinib and pulsatinib. They are both selected red and they are both EMA and FDA approved uh, for those not previously treated with a red And if you then look uh, more into detail uh, on the studies on which the approval was based, for Celpercatinib, you have to phase 1 to Libretto 001 trial. So patients with rectory small non-small cell were enrolled. Uh, and they were divided for the results uh, for platinum pre treated patients and uh, treatment naive patients. And if you look at the pre treated patients, median duration of response was 17.5 uh, months, so quite interesting, I think, uh, and the response rate uh, of above 60%. And if you look at the median duration of response for the treatment naive patients, it was not reached. And the response rate was 85%. It's only 39 patients, but still I think these results are impressive. And I think for calcetinib we have the ARROW study, and well, results are for me quite similar. Response rates 59% in the platinum pretreated patients and 72% in the treatment naive patients, and these are small numbers, so I think you cannot say that one is, is better than the other. And again, median duration of response not reached in treatment naive patients, and over twenty-two months uh, for the pre-treated patients, and also importantly, uh, these uh, agents are both associated with a high int- intracranial response rates. So I think well, both are good options for red uh, rearranged patients.
0: Thank you for breaking that. And you know, something that really gets my attention from red inhibitors is that well, first they're new, and also they put to test every thoracic oncologist with their names. So porcatinib and pralcetinib are certainly some of the drugs that have the most complicated name in thoracic oncology. But these patients stay on drug for longer compared to chemotherapy. So Justin, overall, are these new agents or red inhibitors well tolerated? And in your practice, where are some of the adverse events that you find more challenging to manage?
1: Yeah. So, in my mind, they will always be Loxo292 and Blue667. You know, just, just you know, the, the drugs that, you know, when you're using them in those phase one studies, you know, you always have uh, uh, warm sentiments tor- towards their original names. But I, I agree, you know, that they don't really roll off your tongue. But, you know, in terms of the, the side effects uh, of these agents, you know, in general, the, these are well-tolerated. Um, we, we tend to characterize them as, you know, selective inhibitors, but, you know, the, the, and characterizing them as selective really to differentiate them from the multi-kinase inhibitors, which had, you know, predominantly VEGF effects. Nonetheless, these these drugs still do hit VEGF a bit. And so when you look at the toxicity hypertension in both, so that is one of those things that uh, you're going to want to be managing in patients. You do want to pay attention to the blood pressure, and a fair number of these patients do end up on antihypertensives. That, in my mind, is something that's very easy to manage. You know, we're, we're always going to try to compare and contrast uh, drugs when we have two approved in one space. Ultimately, these drugs are a whole lot more similar than they are different. But there are a key. Uh, there are a few toxicities that that are enriched in one versus the other. So, for example, telpercatib, I, I find dry mouth can be one of those low grade but persistent adversives that you may miss unless you, you ask. The pointed question in patients. Um, We do see diarrhea in in about 20%. Guys, we see some transaminase elevations. Other things, you do see some QTC prolongation. And there have been reports of hypersensitivity reactions, particularly after receiving PD 1 inhibitors. Oh, one of the, the more challenging adverse events that I've found um, that two of my colleagues uh, collaborated with me to, to recently describe, these being Jessica Lynn from MGH and Alex Strillin from Memorial, is uh, chylus effusions. That is either chylothorax or chylus ascites. Um, and this appears to be enriched among the sulpricatinib-treated patients, so it doesn't look like it's an on-target RET effect. Um, it occurs in around seven to ten percent of patients, and this can be really challenging, you know, and persist despite pleurodesis and catheters. So that is one, you know, one teaching point here is if you see a patient who's on subpercutaneous, they're eight ten months into therapy, and you see an enlarging effusion, don't assume that's progression. So, so you really want to do a thoracentesis. Send it for triglycerides as well as cytology because it could actually be a chylous effusion. So that that's one important thing toxicity to to note um, with respect to pralsatinib, Some of the same issues in terms of transaminases and and LFT abnormalities. The the, the one distinguishing adverse event for pralsetinib in my mind is neutropenia and low white blood cell count. Typically, that drops in the first cycle and then plateaus. But it, occasionally, it can reach grade three. And so we think that this is from Jack effects. So one of the other kinases that pralsatinib hits that cell doesn't is Jack. So um, we think that likely mediates some of the marrow suppression. And then finally, you want to be uh, cognizant of uh, pneumonitis, um, particularly with pralsatinib.
0: Thank you, Justin. In all honesty, this, you know, this new adverse event that you just described, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to be on the for it certainly. And, you know, this is one of the beauties about the podcast that we get to learn from so many people. So Lisa, cabozantinib, band, detinib, and sunitinib are multi-targeted red inhibitors. Do they have any role at all in the treatment of red positive lung cancer?
2: For me, I think you really should try to have access to a selective rat inhibitor, either in regular care or within a clinical trial. So, if you look at the the multi-kinase inhibitors versus the, the selective inhibitors, so selpacatinib or satinib, then the result of uh, the latter two are really superior. So if you look at the data, the multi-kinase inhibitors, a small series in general, retrospective series. Responses are usually around 25%, sometimes a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit lower. Median progression-free survival, a couple of months, usually in the range of two to three months. So this is really nothing near the, the selective red inhibitors. Um, and also recently the ETOP ALERT trial was published, was closed prematurely. Electinib was evaluated uh, and none of the 14 enrolled patients had a tumor response. So for me, please try to have access to a uh, select pattern inhibitor. And if you don't have it in your own hospital, look around whether there is a clinical trial or a program in another hospital uh, where the patient could be enrolled.
0: Thank you. And I think it's, you know, a very clear message, Lisa. We have these good drugs, you know, that go on the target. The other ones, you know, like have all their inhibitions and also more side effects you may see with these uh, multi um, agents. The following question is to the two of you: Do you have any preference based on data and clinical experience, or using zolpidem versus pralcetinib? Justin.
1: So you know, as I as I mentioned before, you know, I think these drugs are are a lot more similar than they are different. But at the end of the day, you need to choose one. Um, and and I should also add that you know, uh, unless you discontinue one of them because of toxicity, you know, I don't think you should move from one to the other. So, if someone's progressing on selpercatinib, I don't think there's a role for pralsetinib, and vice versa. So, I think it's one or the other. Exceptions, again, being toxicity. But, you know, I, I, I've, you know, used both of these drugs. Um, I, I tend to use selpercatinib a bit more now. And, Partly because I think it, you know, acknowledging cross-trial comparisons that the treatment naive data from uh, Libretto001, you know, has a slight edge, uh, acknowledging that in the Aero study, you know, some of the eligibility criteria for that uh, treatment naive cohort, you know, initially it, it was just patients who were not eligible for platinum doublet chemotherapy. So, you know, we're not comparing apples to apples, but nonetheless, if I have to choose one drug, I'm I'm typically choosing cell
0: Lisa, do you have, you know, a preference based on data and clinical experience?
2: No, for me, well, the data, well, I think it's very difficult to compare um, quite a low number of patients. So for me, based on the clinical trials, not really a preference. In the Netherlands, it's difficult to get first line access to uh, either uh, one of the, well, uh, one of the drugs. Uh, So we have clinical trials ongoing. uh, So I usually check uh, whether a patient is eligible for a clinical trial and I try to enroll a patient in a clinical trial. Otherwise, I think also, if you look at things like renal or hepatic impairment and contraindications, things are the same. Interactions are quite the same with other drugs. So for me, I, I don't have a real preference and I try to, well, get the one uh, I can get first in the first line.
0: Thank you. You know, target therapy has changed lung cancer and has improved the outcome of many of our patients with lung cancer. Unfortunately, many of our patients, we have disease progression after months or years on this drug. Like EGFR mutant lung cancer, Those Rebioxy at the time of disease progression has a role in red positive lung cancer? Justin? It's a good question. So first off, I'll say that
1: we've taken many of the lessons from other targeted therapies for other drivers and incorporated them into the development of the selective ret TKI. So for example, you know, recognizing that you know, one, you need to have a drug that's potent against the target, two, CNS penetrance, and then three uh, recognizing that for other oncogenes, that gatekeeper mutations are vulnerabilities, right? So the, in the preclinical development of both of these drugs, you know both were optimized in order to overcome gatekeeper mutations from the beginning. So you know, what I think that means is, and I think this is this is certainly panned out, that um, when we start looking at what happens when patients develop resistance we're actually seeing much lower rates of on-target resistance, that is acquired RET mutations in patients receiving the selective RET TKIs. So in our institutional series, you know, it looked like about 10% of patients developed on-target mutations, typically within the solvent front residue, which is G810. Another 10 15% uh, developed MET amplification as bypass signaling pathway. You know, that, that similar to, to many other oncotines. We, we know that MET, you know, is, you know, common bypass pathway. And then there, there's low numbers of, of other defined uh, resistance mutation, you know, involving the MAP kinase pathway. Uh, so ultimately, to, to answer your question, is there a role for repeat biopsy? In my mind, I I do think there is a role for for RBP because it helps my decision-making as an investigator for these patients. There are multiple next-generation RET TKIs that are currently in development. I think where those are going to be most successful is in patients who have continued uh, RET dependence, so those with acquired RET mutations is where I would want to preferentially enroll patients to next generation ret inhibitors. So, you know, if it's the bypass pathway, you know, then I could think about starting to be efforts looking at um, looking at combinations. Or if I don't find anything, you know, I'm gonna generally prioritize platinum double chemotherapy first uh, for my patients. So that's how I view the role of a repeat biopsy here.
0: Thank you, Justin. And do you have a preference of tissue versus liquid biopsy at disease progression?
1: So I would start with liquid biopsy uh, because that that's easy. I can get that in, in everyone. And then the role of a tissue biopsy, how uh, easy it is and safe. So if it's someone who's got, you know, I described the scenario of a pleural effusion before, and especially if they're on self, and, and you know, i wouldn't be draining that anyway. So, if it's fluid, easily accessible, then I typically do repeat a biopsy, um, acknowledging that right now it's really helping me make the decision trial or 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 not um, that there is no standard of care like like we've had for for other oncogenes right now.
0: Thank you. Lisa, as we continue to talk about, you know, what happens after this progression, after all targeted therapy is exhausted, what is your preferred regimen for patients with red-positive lung cancer? I think that's a good question.
2: Uh, and I think you should stress again, the need for a biopsy to see whether you have something on target or whether you have a Uh Again, see whether as a clinical trial uh, that the patient could go for and that's rational for that patient and otherwise indeed platinum doublet blood blood chemotherapy. Um, if you look at immunotherapy data from monotherapy, it's quite um, disappointing and I would not recommend it. A lot of data uh, in general, if you look at retrospective series, such as the immunotarget series, the responses the progression of your survival are really disappointing in red-positive non-small cell. Um, and also, if you look at immuno chemotherapy. We don't know whether it works with positive non small cell. We will have the data on the libretto 431 and accelerated lung. So, comparing uh, targeted therapy versus chemo or chemo immuno in the first line. Uh, but I think for me now, uh, the current next line of treatment uh, will be platinum blood chemotherapy and not immunotherapy.
0: Thank you, Lisa. And I want to expand a little bit on that. So, you know, the immunotherapy word data that has been compiled in patients with target mutations and immunotherapy. So in your clinical experience, there is very limited role in immunotherapy alone in these patients, correct? Yeah, true.
2: And if you look back at at patients that uh, are alive for quite a long time, so they got immunotherapy before widespread testing was done or they didn't have enough tissue for testing. In general, if you can discover the red fusion after the patient got immunotherapy, in general the benefit of immunotherapy was really low. So I think again, well I would urge to test upfront to identify those that, that probably will not benefit from immunotherapy. Uh, and you will also will not harm the patient if target therapy after immunotherapy because I think there is a increased risk of risk of toxicity.
0: And that's a great answer to another question I have. And um also linked to the next question is we are seeing We got approved for chemotherapy plus immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, so it brings attention to why biomarker testing is not only important for patients with metastatic disease, but also patients with early disease because they may not benefit from this neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. Is that a correct conclusion, Lisa? Lisa? Well, for the, the new adjuvant setting, we don't know
2: yet, so I think we need these data, and that you uh, don't only test for EGFR and ALK in these patients. But in general, if you look at the, the metastatic setting, uh, for example, for EGFR and ALK, and if you then extrapolate the data found for immunotherapy metastatic setting to the early disease, then you find similar results. So for me, well, the way to go a red positive non small cell would not be chemo-immuno in the new adjuvant setting.
0: Thank you. And that's just a perfect way for our next question, which is about the introduction of red inhibitors into early stage disease. For example, adjuvant therapy, we do have a trial in our institution about adjuvant. So, Justin, can you talk to us about the introduction of red inhibitors for early stage and the adjuvant or new adjuvant setting?
1: Yeah, so I, I think this is gonna be a critical question for us as a field in thoracic oncology, which is how do we systematically look at the role of targeted therapies as we get to increasingly rare oncogenic driver subsets? So, you know, we we, we now we, we know now consistently, right, that targeted therapies beat chemotherapy. And that, that, that's kind of a, across the board, you know, EGFR out. Um, and, you know, we, we now have data from ADORA in EGFR, right? You know, of the benefit of adjuvant osimertinib. Uh, we have ongoing studies of, um, you know, uh, electinib in the Alina study. Um, the question is, is it going to be feasible to do a randomized phase 3 study for every subset, you know, including subsets that, you know, RET is 1 to 2%, are we going to be able to do ROS1, are we going to be able to do NTRAC, you know, or are we going to take some of the learnings from the metastatic setting, and once we show that the paradigm is successful in, in EGFR and ALF, you know, do, do we need to do separate studies for each of these? I worry about the ability to do that. I, I think many institutions aren't going to be able to open up an adjuvant study for a, a one to two percent subset. I think where we, where we need to go is, you know, there there are certainly efforts now looking at master protocols, right, where it's multiple neo-adjuvant arms depending on driver. You now, I, I think that's what's going to need to happen in order to to be feasible.
0: Thank you, Justin. And another thing that I have found challenging is we knew adjuvant studies is that sometimes the patients get to us after the tumor is out, right? So I think we have to rethink a lot of our workflow, not only in our institutions, but also in the referrals that we get. So we're able to talk to patients early on about these trials. So we are close to the end of this conversation uh, but before that, we cannot end the conversation without talking about research. So Lisa and Justin, any new and data coming down the pipeline for red positive lung cancer trial, real world data? I will start with Lisa. I think Justin already mentioned that there are several phase one trials ongoing.
2: So if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, for example, you have today the TPX0046. Um, the Margaret trial with TAS uh, 0953 mm-hmm. uh, with, against the red salt and gatekeeper mutations, uh, BOSS with a lot of numbers, uh, kind it, uh, with also some preliminary results reported. So I think, well, it's important that we keep learning from patients with red positive non-small cell, especially if they progress on the available therapies and try to enroll patients in a clinical trial. If you can look at real-world data. I think a quite nice publication, also in GTO, was the International Red Map study. So it's a retrospective series, but really multi-center, uh, multi-country, over 200 patients with red-positive small cell included. And I think the main message is that patients treated with multi-kinase inhibitors really don't do well, and that patients with red inhibitors, uh, compared to those without, uh, do much better. Median overall survival was over 50 months in those treated with RET inhibitors, uh, and OP 16 months uh, for those without. So I think, again, the message is we should test and try enroll patients in clinical trials or give RET inhibitors.
0: Thank you, Lisa. Justin, what insights you about research in research about red positive lung cancer?
1: So far, I'd, I think we've just scraped the surface of how resistance emerges. And I, I think we've gotten a low-hanging fruit uh, and some of the straightforward bypass pathways but you know so far most of these reports have been you know single or just a few institutions combining uh patient numbers recently there's been an effort that was uh, launched by jessica um, and and others uh, called the registry which we owe the name to stephen lou which which is basically trying to pull real world data on resistance so that is patients who have received a selective ret inhibitor who have either had a plasma sample or a repeat tissue biopsy and they have over 20 institutions that have agreed to participate and have already started to collect data and you know i anticipate the numbers will be in the hundreds of patients with um, resistance information and i think that will be really critical to guide our next therapeutic strategies.
0: Thank you. This has been a great discussion. Thanks to both of you for being so generous with your time. And of course, all the work that you're both leading in the field. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Gaynor and Dr. Hendricks.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks indeed for inviting me. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes in SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and our website islc.org under newsroom. We hope you will tune in regularly to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website islc.org in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.